My first ever UK Black Pride was in Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens. I remember I was wearing my Stonewall, my red Stonewall t-shirt. The thing that stands out for me the most about that experience was I was on the stage and we were looking out and Lady Phil was doing the thing she always does at the end of the event where she introduces all of the volunteers and the crowd just screams, you know, and cheers us on. And I started crying. This is the official UK Black Pride Time Capsule podcast, a celebration of black and brown, queer joy and togetherness. In this limited edition series, we've literally bottled the essence of the UK Black Pride celebrations. Everything you're about to hear was recorded in the summer of 2022, and the audio files will be sealed underground at the Olympic Park as a powerful legacy for generations of our people to come. If you're young, black and queer, and you're listening to my voice in the future, my name is Iwan Obinyan. Welcome home. What you know about skill, talent, vigor, vim, you, her, them, him, that's birthright's way, that's potent, that knowledge, that energy, smoke, sunshine through the UK showers, south ends where it all got started, it's mine, it's ours, black pride, black power, black pride. Previously on the UK Black Pride Time Capsule podcast, we established the community-wide feeling that UK Black Pride is a home, a source of family, and an annual protest. This week, I spent some time with Josh Rivers, head of communications at UK Black Pride, to speak about the key moments in his life that led him to UK Black Pride and how he and the vast team of volunteers work together to bring this epic celebration to life and communicate its importance to the wider society. Content warning. This episode contains mentions of sexual trauma. I'm Josh Rivers. I am the head of communications for UK Black Pride. I joined in 2018 and I've been doing it since, every year since. As head of communications, I really help um, shape the narrative around UK Black Pride in the public space, among media and influencers, among the communities. I also help Phil with her public profile as well. And I help us with our general communications um, around UK Black Pride. So what do we say, when do we say it, and how do we say it, and to whom? On your show, Busy Being Black, it's an amazing show. And um, I think it's a very important show as well. At the start of your show, every episode, you always ask your guests, how is your heart? And if you don't mind, I would love to ask you the same question because it just makes sense. My heart at the moment feels uh, full, um, excited, energized and enthusiastic. I've recently reorganized my life to reprioritize busy being Black. And it means that I've had to, or that I am currently challenging myself 
to manage my time a bit differently, to think about what work I take on, to think about who I give my time to, and to think really creatively ultimately about what Busy Beyond Black sounds like and looks like and what I want to do next and building relationships and connections. And so it's a really exciting time for me. And I've been really moved at the amount of support that those around me and those I don't even know have continued to offer to me so generously. And so I feel really lucky to be able to focus on and pursue something I love so much. Amazing. Before we get into your relationship with UK Black Pride, um, can you talk to me about your first ever Black Pride? Like paint a picture. My first ever UK Black Pride was in um, Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens. And I remember I was wearing my Stonewall, my red Stonewall t-shirt, because at that time, um, Stonewall was donating the t-shirts for UK Black Pride team members. And the thing that stands out for me the most about that experience was I was on the stage and, you know, we were looking out. I think there was 4,000, 5,000 people in attendance. And Lady Phil was doing the thing she always does at the end of the event where she introduces all of the volunteers and the crowd just screams, you know, and cheers us on. And I started crying. You know, it was an amazing experience to be part of something that makes people feel good, that makes our communities especially feel seen, loved and held and celebratory. And I just remember feeling really like an immense sense of emotion and purpose. And I think there are many volunteers at UK Black Pride for whom their first experience um, at UK Black Pride is volunteering, is helping put the event together. And so there were a few of us on the stage that day, just really blown away. You, you never go into UK Black Pride, or I don't think people can go into UK Black Pride really with an understanding of how powerful an experience it is. And then you get there and you're overwhelmed completely. It's how the community responds in the space that's so special, right? Like the volunteers, we just provide the framework, right? We just put the space together. But the community comes into that space and they make that space what it is. And so you never know what you're doing and if you've done it right until you feel the energy of the space. And so I think that is the overwhelming emotion that we help facilitate something that helps our communities give off this remarkable energy. And so that, that was my first experience. How did it all begin for you with UK Black Pride? What was that starting point? So you said 2018. Did you just apply to be a volunteer? How did that even begin? How did that cross your mind? Uh, so in 2018, I was going through a pretty traumatic time in my life. And one of the people who came to my rescue was Lady Phil. And we hadn't met properly before that. But she was one of the loudest and most consistent supporters of mine when I was going through this difficult time. And she called me one day and we chatted for hours and we spoke, she called me every day actually, just to make sure I was okay. And we formed a really deep bond. And she said, look, when you're ready, come help me create space at UK Black Pride. And I need a head of communications. And I was like, I can't do this. Like, I'm not ready. Like, no one likes me. And, you know, <laughs> this, I won't help us get any coverage. And I, all these doubts. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And she said, when you're ready, come be the head of communications at UK Black Pride. Mm. And so I woke up one day and I said, you know what? I have to trust that the ancestors are leading me in the right direction, that they put this wonderful person in my orbit for a reason. And so I accepted your invitation and the rest is history. And so around that time, I know that... <sighs> I kind of don't want to talk about this because I feel like you have to talk about it so much because I listen to so many interviews with you. 
But I feel like it's important to understand how that event there impacted you going into UK Black Pride. Do you know what I mean? So I guess sure. what was it that was going on that was horrible and just put you in this dark space that then led to that interaction with Lady Phil and then UK Black Pride? Because it will just help the audience have some context. So in 2015 and 2016, I was going through a pretty intense personal transformation. I was activated, as it were, by the Baltimore riots and the murder of Freddie Gray. And I was really upset. Um, I was in the barber. I was reading the New York Times. And President Obama was admonishing the rioters um, who were burning Baltimore to the ground after the funeral of Freddie Gray. And I was so upset, I started crying. And it was the moment I... I was awakened, right? I became aware that it was just by the grace of God that I wasn't in the U.S., right? My dad's Black American, my mom's white British. I have a British passport. I just happened to come back to the U.K. to study fashion at London College of Fashion, and I stayed. Um, but there's no telling what my life would have been like in the U.S. And so I feel I felt grateful and also upset and that was when I turned on and decided to stop ignoring the Black Lives Matter movement and to think about like what role I wanted to play in helping uplift um, Black communities. And then in 2016, I had another awakening when I learned about James Baldwin and Bayard Rustin and Audre Lorde and queer Black scholars like E. Patrick Johnson and Jafari Allen and Kathy Cohen. And I was just going through this, like, this tremendous like transformation. And I was working as like the, the head of new membership for a members club and decided this isn't the work I need to be doing. I want to do media. Like I want to help communicate and narrativize our lives in a really meaningful way. And so at the end of 2016, I had just pitched myself to the owner of Gay Times and said, look, I can help take this magazine into the 21st century, make it more forward-looking and queer. And I don't know how, but I got that job. Um, and so I spent a year, almost a year at Gay Times trying to reposition the magazine and its digital offering to be more forward-thinking and inclusive. You know, for my efforts, I was appointed the editor of the magazine, and it was the first time in the magazine's 43-year history they had had a Black editor. And three weeks later, I was fired after tweets from my past were dug up and published um, via BuzzFeed. And it was one of the biggest cancellations of 2017. It was embarrassing and traumatic, and, you know, I went into hiding, as it were. And... That was not only my a pivotal moment for me, like in my transformation, you know, to realize that there was a past I had to reckon with and that I couldn't just jettison parts of myself as I moved forward. I had to find a way to bring the different parts of my past together um, to form a more, a more full person in the present. Um, and so I did a lot of wound licking and queer black elders and age mates were gathering around me to provide support and bring wine and food and <laughs> offer their wisdom and insights. And one of those people was Lady Phil. Just out of curiosity, why did you choose Gay Times in the first place? Like, why was that the place? I mean, you know what the LGBTQ media landscape is like in the UK. Mm -hmm. And I thought Absolutely. it was the best of the bunch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. which doesn't say a lot, of course. But, you know, now, I mean, you look at Gay Times and it's, wow, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. It it it's so different and I have a great relationship with with the team at at Gay Times and Yeah. Tag's done a great job. Remarkable, but you know, Lewis the editorial director, you know, he was there when I was there and even then he had such a really he had such a grip mm -hmm. on 
you know, the, the, the things that he published, the stories he pursued, um, were always the more interesting of the output at the time. So I think it's it's Tag's leadership and Lewis and and how that team has diversified and grown um, in the time. So, Absolutely. you know, it wasn't my ship to steer, but I certainly appreciate hugely that experience. One of the things that I love is that when you were going through what you went through and Lady Phil and all of the other black elders, you know, it took, I get goosebumps talking about that, you know, because it's this thing of the black village <laughs> came and I'm literally feeling it and they literally gathered around you and they said, right. come here, we're going to uh, bathe your wounds we're going to put some bandages on your spiritual cuts and bruises, you know. And I know I'm laughing, but it's not. It's actually so important to me what you just said. And I want you to speak to that. Like, what did that feel? What was that moment like? Did you expect that the the village elders would come together and do that for you? I mean... I hadn't expected it, to be honest. I thought that I had made a mistake that I wouldn't be able to come back from. And I remember Campbell X, actually. So two Campbells, Topher Campbell and Campbell X in particular. And where Topher Campbell showed up the week of the of the thing and was like, tell me what to say and I'll say it. I got you, right? He was like ready to fight. I think he went on BBC Newsnight and was like fisticuffs. <laughs> um, it, was, it was amazing. I felt so supported. Um, and Campbell X um, said, take the time you need to heal, but get up and get back out there because we need you. So it was that kind of, like the kind of fierce support, uh, the emotional support, the encouraging support. And I should be clear that I was also admonished by the elders, right? Like it wasn't just, come here, baby, everything's okay. It was like, let's talk about what happened. Let's talk about why you said those things. Let's talk about where you were in your life. And so they also helped me like process some old traumas that, I had been weaponizing against other people. So in a way, when I think about that, all the things that were happening there, there's like emotional, spiritual, mental, psychological disruption. Like all of you is, is being disrupted on so many levels. Yeah, and I understood almost immediately why. You know, like I would never wish that kind of takedown on anybody. It's awful. It did also knock me onto a more specific path. It did also help clear and arrange my priorities. It did also help refine my voice and my thinking, and it helps me focus, right? One of the questions I had for my mentor at the time when I was offered the job of editor was, because I had a doubt, I, I don't know if this is what I want to do. You know, I don't know if, if this is my calling per se. I just wanted to help do something behind the scenes for this magazine. And my question to my mentor was, is this what someone of my interest and passion should be focused on? Should I be in this kind of white tower, white media tower, trying to open it up to queer people of color? Or should I be in my community doing the work? And I think the ancestors answered that question. <laughs> they were like, get out. They were like, whack. <laughs> so it was easier for me in the aftermath of that to make decisions about what I wanted to say and do and, to, and for whom. Um, and so, you know, the birth of Busy Being Black and my role at UK Black Pride, um, I don't think that's, I don't think it's an accident that those two things happened side by side. Prior to that whole situation, what was your relationship like with the Black community prior to the awakening, both in terms of like Baltimore, discovering all of the Black uh, queer thinkers and orators and poets, and then also the Gay Times thing? What was your relationship like with the Black community? Well, I think I was a bit lost. I think that's evident, right? I think I was, I mean, 
it's worth saying that, you know, I'm, I'm steeped in Black American culture, right? I spent my childhood summers in Texas. My grandfather was a preacher. Like, I, I had a an understanding of civil rights and racism and all of that. So it's not that I was completely dormant and I woke up, but I was steeped and enculturated at the same time in whiteness, right? Um, I was, I'm living in the UK for fuck's sake, you know, like <laughs> yeah. one of the most white supremacist places you can possibly live. And, and I was also in the white gay community, right? I felt like my belonging was going to be found there. And, you know, I paid a dear price for that, learning the hard way about that, right? Yeah. I remember having dinner with uh, my mentor in January 2016 at a restaurant in Southwark. And I was reading the Malcolm X autobiography. And by the time I got to dinner, I was, I was like in tears. He was like, what are you going through? <laughs> I was oh, like, wow. this is just such a difficult read. And I also don't know where I belong in all of this. Like, I don't know what I should be doing. And this, I feel a bit defeated and angry and all of the things that I had experienced and that I had kind of tucked away or, or compartmentalized somewhere in my head were coming out, right? I was triggered by reading Malcolm X's autobiography. And it was then I learned about Bayard Rustin. And I'll never forget that experience of learning about Bayard Rustin and the shock, I get goosebumps thinking about it, the shock of electricity that, that ran through me. Here is a gay black man who was instrumental in the civil rights movement, who organized the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. He was a singer, he was a writer, he was a poet. Like he was this multifaceted person who showed up in the world as a 3D black gay man, right? There was nothing about his life that he hid, right? And he was arrested for cruising and he spent time in jail. And he, I mean, I haven't been arrested for cruising or spent time in jail, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, he was a Quaker, he was a pacifist, and um, I just felt like I saw a black blueprint, like, and I've always needed a blueprint, as it were. And then shortly after that, I learned of James Baldwin, and so here is this incisive firebrand commentator, writer, poet again, you know, and someone who fled to Europe, like me, <laughs> and wanted to create a life for himself that, you know, erroneously, of course, because you can never get away from racism, but that was maybe a bit more livable for him. And so I think that was what I was looking for. I was, I was kind of unmoored and I didn't know what to do. And I knew I was drowning in the white gay community. I knew that this wasn't the person I was supposed to be. And so I think James Baldwin and Bard Rustin offered me a gateway into myself, as it were. Absolutely. It's, it's interesting what you're saying about just the feeling lost and, and engaging with sort of white gayness in absence of a home. Because one of the things that recurs amongst some of my black queer friends, but also when we were interviewing people at UK Black Pride, was this idea of wrestling with whiteness before sort of abandoning it and then trying to find somewhere, somewhere where you belong. I get performance anxiety. What's your name? I'm Melody. I grew up in a place called Rugby just outside Coventry very very small black population and I tried to find white people that I felt comfortable with and you know always been viewed as a bit different within the community and so finding people that look like me I feel free when I first discovered it just walked around and I was like yeah and everyone looked fine beautiful stunning gorgeous and I just want to hug everyone give them a kiss and a hug which is a bit weird but yeah it's, it's a lot like I'm here by myself now 
So I feel like I can go uh, up to anyone and just say hi. And that's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's a lovely thing. Black Pride is one of these spaces that I think, for me, it's, it's mega important to being able to come together and be in community, and especially because I live in a fairly white place, like, to be able to just, like, have the space where I know I have my people is really beautiful. Yeah, Black Pride is, like, it's vital because, for me, I started coming when I was, like, 18, and... Like, I remember when I, when I was going to go, I was so scared because I felt like I wasn't black enough and I wasn't queer enough. And then now I'm like, of course, of course. And I think the space is just, it validates you and it makes you feel like a part of something rather than just an anomaly. So, yeah, I think it's beautiful. It's really important. I'm definitely not alone. I know that in trying to find some sort of belonging in the dominant culture. Because I also think, and this is kind of a new thought, but, mm -hmm. and so I, this thought might change <laughs> as I continue to read it and talk to people, but I do think there is a type, there is a certain nobility in trying to belong within the dominant culture, right? Like, I respect those who are trying to survive and who think because they've been lied to, who think that belonging within the dominant culture might make life a little bit easier. And I think that, you know, it's a lie that's fed to us and that, that some of us ultimately end up believing until we learn the hard way that it's a lie, right? That, that that true belonging can never be found in those spaces. Not now, right? So I do think there's a, a, there's a type of nobility in that and that we should have patience for those who are attempting to belong in those spaces. I do also think that part of that false narrative around belonging comes at a price, right? Like it, black people and queer black people necessarily have to be disparaged for belonging in white spaces to make sense, right? Because whiteness demands another to bully and to belittle and to be above. You know, what did Toni Morrison say? 1993, Charlie Rose interview. If you can only be tall because somebody is on their knees, then you have a very serious problem. And my feeling is, White people have a very, very serious problem, and they should start thinking about what they can do about it. Leave me out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that quote so much. And so there's that, right? The, the belonging that is offered to us in white spaces only comes if we go on our knees, right? Preach. And I think that many of us are standing up and saying, I don't belong down here. Exactly, exactly. Which is why spaces like UK Black Pride are so important because in those spaces we get to process, we get to be, we get to love, we get to form new connections. And I'm sure there's loads of partnerships that have come out of just UK Black Pride and Black queer people sort of coming together to do new things, you know, it's so important. I believe that. Yeah, yeah. I believe that. Yeah. I think one of the things I was so, I have been so surprised by over the years is how little the mainstream conversation has changed around spaces like UK Black Pride and indeed the need for spaces like UK Black Pride. I think for any of us who are paying attention and who are awake, the need for spaces like UK Black Pride should be pretty evident. 
we can see the rise in homophobic hate crimes. We can see the rise in um, kind of local and systemic racism and discrimination, Islamophobia, transphobia, ableism. Like we see it all, all the time and none of it's going away. And so this idea that we have to keep answering the question about why is UK Black Pride necessary feels a bit redundant or even reductive, right? People just need to pay attention. And I think in the same ways that people and communities who've been marginalized have always forged spaces for the celebration and commiseration sometimes among themselves, so does UK Black Pride, right? So do the communities that we represent need a space that we can call our own. But I think an important shift in our narrative over the years has been because we get compared to mainstream pride, I'm using air quotes, mainstream pride organizations all the time, as if UK Black Pride wouldn't be necessary if mainstream pride organizations were more inclusive, quote unquote. And what we keep saying is that whether or not mainstream pride organizations are inclusive, queer Black people and our allies, we're always going to need a space to celebrate who we are where we come from, our unique cultures and lived experiences. That won't go away. The idea that it would go away is deeply problematic, right? Um, it suggests that the only problems that we experience come from mainstream pride organizations. It suggests that we live in societies and cultures in which Black people and Black queer people are accepted wholeheartedly um, without any issues. It suggests we live in a society where our migrant and refugee asylum-seeking siblings are treated fairly and aren't forced to live on pennies a week. None of these structural and societal ills that impact so many people in our communities show any sign of going away. But I would also say that our lives can't just be understood as always only ever impacted by violence and discrimination, right? And UK Black Pride is a wonderful testament to that. We are also the makers and pursuers of joy, of celebration, of love, of intimacy, of laughter, of hugs and belonging. Like there's so much more to us than the worst things that society does to us. And so this question that people ask us is, is really limited in its scope. Um, but of course they wouldn't realize that because they, would, they ask limiting questions in the first place. <laughs> And so it's been an important part for us as part of our public narrative um, to make sure that we're always talking about the joy in our communities as well. Do you find that you get pushback from a comms perspective from the white gay community? We don't typically get pushback from white gays and we're not looking to them to validate us or, I mean, we wouldn't take their opinion seriously in any case. <laughs> Love it. Love to hear it. Um, <laughs> In talking to people, I guess, from mainstream media, how, how do you phrase what UK Black Pride is to them? Or do you just sort of lay out and just like, this is the thing? Because your, your aim is to get them to cover it, right? So you must have to package it a certain way for them to even want to talk about UK Black Pride, right? Is there a way that you do that? Well, the goal isn't always only just to have them cover it, right? Okay. There's a certain period of time leading up to any event or announcement, i.e. The, the findings from our We Will Be Heard survey, you know, where we need them to cover the particular thing. But part of the communications um, function at UK Black Pride is also to act as a voice for the communities we seek to impact and represent. And so we're in a unique position, I think, within the media landscape, um, not only because we have the figurehead um, of the inimitable Lady Phil, but because we are uniquely placed to speak about the intersections that people often erase. 
So, for example, in a public conversation about queer Black people, they're not also simultaneously having a conversation about homelessness or about domestic violence or about Islamophobia or about transphobia, right? What we live in a society that silos all of these issues as if they are separate. And we saw this with the government's national LGBT survey. Again, I have to do air quotes around everything. That 94.2% of respondents to the, the, the government's national LGBT survey were white. And so this conversation about what does it mean to be LGBT in the UK is deeply racist, doesn't include the communities that UK Black Pride um, represents. And in fact, to my knowledge, UK Black Pride wasn't even uh, consulted to help amplify the government's national LGBT survey in the first place. So there's a very flat conversation about what queer Blackness is in the media. And so I think we've been lucky to be able to um, to help influence that, that conversation. And where possible, drive home um, the importance of understanding uh, LGBTQ communities broadly as as deeply intersectional communities. And this is probably a critique that we lodge d- across society, not just at the media, right? That we must understand um, that queer Black people, queer Black and brown people are actually experiencing discrimination and oppression in multiple ways simultaneously. It's Absolutely. not just about r- waving a rainbow flag. Very, very important work. Very, very important work. Thank you for the work that you do. Like, that that, that hits hard. What's the vibe? Um, what's the vibe? I, I think the vibe's chilled. People are just happy to be out. You know, people feel intentional. It's nice to sort of see people out. Um, a little bit old as well. <laughs> but in a good way, you know, it's nice to see the space change, the, the more diversity, more expressions, you know, becoming to pride for, I don't perhaps for almost as long as it's existed. So it definitely feels like there's change and, and that's nice. Yeah. Hi. Hi. My name is Jamie Charles Coventry. I'm from London. I was born here and I will always be here. We are at London Gay Black Pride today. And you know what? It ain't never been here and it will always be here now. Because you know why? There's people here that are wearing the crown and they will always make sure that everybody knows what's going down. Because you know why? Us beautiful people here, we will show you the way of love. Because love is nothing that you can ever describe push away it will always be there on display because you know why we're all here to pray because God is in the presence of us every day thank you you're welcome UK Black Pride is not a small celebration it takes an army of people to put it all together I spoke with Josh about the process and the aftermath The work that you and the team of volunteers do is truly incredible. Every time I've attended, it's always felt cohesive, unapologetic and intentional. And that's from the charities and organisations represented right through to the artists on stage and even the food selection. Well, it's intentional, right? We create this space together as a family 
so that it's a space where people do feel like home. And I think it really helps that each of the volunteers at UK Black Pride is utterly committed to creating a safe and brave celebratory space. And the things that we, as you do with family and when you're working closely with people, the things that we argue over are like whether or not we can make it even better than it already is. And whether we can make it feel softer or more celebratory or louder or bigger. Like, you know, how, how can we make as many people as possible feel um, energized in that space and safe in that space? How do you get the volunteers to do that? What is that process? How do you get everyone to be so unified? Is it that they just come with that? Or is there something that you do when you're talking to them and prepping them? Well, I can only speak as one of the core team volunteers. So we have core team volunteers who help UK Black Pride run year-round and who are largely responsible for the delivery of the annual event. And then we have the wider volunteers who are managed by Aisha Shaibu, who's our head of community engagement. Um, So I can't speak to the corralling and energizing of the wider group of volunteers who help on the day. But certainly among the core team, I think that is Phil's leadership. I mean, she is the mother of our group, and I know that she certainly acts like it and gives a great deal of herself to all of us, um, not only in professional capacities, but certainly in personal capacities too. And I think that that love and that nurturing that Phil extends to each of us in our own separate and unique ways is something that we extend to each other as well as, as core team volunteers. And I think that is then embedded into the work that we create, right? It's, it's infused with this love that really comes from Phil and blossoms among all of us. As you sit here a month after UK Black Pride's reconvening, how are you feeling? My honest feeling is is mixed. It's bittersweet often. UK Black Pride is run entirely by volunteers. And there's a cohort of us within uh, UK Black Pride who work year-round. So in the communications team, it's, it's fielding press requests. It's arranging speaking opportunities for Phil and other members of the UK Black Pride team. It's working on partnerships with, with major brands. It's Pride campaigns, Black History Month campaigns. And then we also have the flagship event, which takes place um, every summer. And so leading up to it is a lot of stress and excitement and looking forwardness. It's such a powerful experience, UK Black Pride. And so I think among all of us, there is that nervousness. Are we going to get this right? What haven't we thought of? Is the space accessible enough? All these thoughts run through our head. And then afterwards, there's kind of like a drop. You know, yeah. you, you've done the thing, you've delivered it. And this year in particular, with UK Black Pride being named the world's largest free Black Pride celebration, I think I certainly feel a bit almost deflated. Like we, we gave it everything we could. And, that, and it was an amazing result. And so I'm in the process currently of recharging, of, of figuring out how to find more juice and energy to give back to UK Black Pride. And I think that people, I think this is a lesson really for all of us who, who work in service of the communities that we love and that we want to impact. We have to remember also that we have to take time to make sure that we have the emotional, mental, physical resources to give. So I guess for you, what does that recharging look like? My recharging at the moment is reinvesting my creative energies. You know, I'm doing a lot of reading as well. I love reading like multiple academic and esoteric texts at the same time and trying to find the connection between the two. I find that to be a really vitalizing experience. I'm sleeping a lot. Um, I've been drinking a lot of wine. That's probably not the healthiest way (laughs) to recharge, but I have been. 
And, you know, I'm, I'm pursuing love and intimacy and sex and joy and friendship and just trying to find the things that light me up and fulfill me. And I think we charge on the go, right? Like there's very few of us who can actually stop working completely or completely unplugged from the world. We have to find ways to recharge on the go, you know, be motivated on the move. And so I'm, I'm doing a lot of that. We're moving a little more slowly and making more time for things that, that light us up. Absolutely, yeah. We can't go out to the Alps and, and <laughs> go skiing. For... I did do that earlier this year, actually. <laughs> no way, no way. <laughs> that was my first time skiing. It was very Really? Cool. How was it? Yeah. Did you get battered and bruised? No, I did amazingly. My fr- I've okay. never been skiing before. And we were there for my friend's birthday. And he and all his friends had skied like their entire lives. And one day I just put on a pair of skis and went down the baby slope and didn't fall over. And my friend was like, I've never seen someone take to skis like that. And then within an hour, I was on the red slope throwing myself down the hill. It was fun. I'm an Aries. So there's not much I can <laughs> just kind of jump into head first yeah. and see, see if I fall, I fall. And so it was It was lots of fun. It was really thrilling. I think because you do a lot of fitness. So I've been on your Instagram. Um, oh. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry, but your dancing, your physical physique, it's like on point, like fire. So I can imagine going down that ski slope, your body was like, yeah, we do this. We know what we're doing. Balance, power. Uh, yeah, it's all core strength and legs. And that's yes. mostly me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like 95% legs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm the same. Like, yeah, long legs. Thinking back to that period of time when you felt lost and your experience at gay times and then having to rebuild your life and find new community, would you say that you've healed from those past wounds or are they still somewhat fresh? I wouldn't say they're fresh. Um, I don't know wounds ever really, emotional wounds ever really close. Okay. I'm not convinced they close completely because I think they, because if they, they wouldn't be able to be ripped open so easily. <laughs> right? I don't know. Um, I do think that I'm a vastly different person. I do think that I've processed um, a lot of what I went through, you know, and trigger warning sexual violence. But, you know, my first experience, sexual experience with a man was an assault, mm. right? Um, at 17. And I think that anger that I hadn't processed until 2017 was had metastasized in me for a long time. And so that was part of what I had to work through as well, which now I feel, feel fine about. But then it, that was one of the, the triggers and the, and the things I was angry about. So yeah, so the, the elders definitely helped me work through it. I, I just don't know that, I don't know, I don't want to be false to people who are looking for an answer about healing and say, yeah, all wounds close. I just don't think they do. Right, right, right. <laughs> But they, I guess they can be, I don't know. It's, it's like a scar, isn't it? That, that There is a, a scarification, I think, you know? Yeah, there's a scarification. And the memory of that doesn't go away. I think that's what I mean. Okay, is that, yeah. But our scars are beautiful, right? And yeah, I do think yeah. that the more of us, I think that's why I'm busy being Black. I try to be really vulnerable and honest um, to say how I'm feeling and what I'm going through because and what I have been through. Because I think our scars are beautiful. And I think that, the more of us who are happy to show our scars, not maybe not happy, but willing to show our scars, we let other people know that their scars are beautiful too. And that yes. we're not expecting perfection, 
right? We're not expecting you to come into a space only when you're fully healed, um, to have it all figured out, to be able to access therapy. Like what we have to be able to do as a community is understand the reality of the worlds that we live in and that we inhabit or that we orbit. And they're not always fair. They're not always just. Queer Black people are so often denied things that other people get generously. Yes. And so if we can create those spaces, Reverend Angel Kyoto says love is space. It's creating enough space around ourselves so other people can show up as they are. And that doesn't mean that we don't hope that things are changed or shifted, but that to come from a place of love is to be an acceptance of what is, even while we're moving it towards something that is more whole, more just, and more spacious for all of us. Powerful. Powerful. Yeah. So that's the motivating ethos for me. I want to create space. Thank you so, so much, Josh. It was really beautiful to speak to you and get your thoughts on so many things. I really appreciate it, and I really appreciate you. I really enjoyed being here. I'm so grateful for this opportunity. Thank you. Dedicated to all the volunteers who work tirelessly to put on one of the most important celebrations for Black and Brown LGBTQ plus people. Thank you for your sacrifice and work. The theme of this year's UK Black Pride was power. In next week's episode, I'll be attempting to find out what power means for black and brown LGBTQ plus people in 2022. You can find out more about UK Black Pride by visiting ukblackpride.org.uk and AI Studios by visiting aiaistudios.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at aiai.studios to find out more about the stories we tell and the amazing people we work with. Also, please rate and leave a review. It really helps us to reach more people. This was an AI Studios podcast in collaboration with UK Black Pride and proudly supported by Gay Times. The UK Black Pride Time Capsule podcast was recorded on location at the Olympic Park in Stratford with Audio Mango and at Glasshouse Studios in London. It was produced by me, Iwen Obinian. The production assistant was Ede Damola Bajomo. Development by Abby Hollick. Field recordings by Toby Adebajo. Theme music by Grown Girl Biscuits with lyrics and performance by Ade. A special thanks to the many volunteers who gave their time and energy to support us on the day.